Thank you, Pastor Dave, for that ministry and music. This morning brings us to a close of our studies in 1 Thessalonians. The book ends with a benediction and then a few closing remarks. The term benediction is actually a Latin term. It's from bene, which means good, and dictum, which means word. It is a a good word in the form of a prayer. It's actually a prayer beseeching the blessing of God. Thus, the book ends with a prayer seeking God's blessing upon the Thessalonians. What is the blessing that is sought? Well, the answer is the sanctification of the believers at Thessalonica. So we want to look at this benediction and these closing exhortations together this morning. In the benediction, as I said, Paul prays that God would sanctify the Thessalonian believers. And as we look at verse 23, as we take it apart, we see that first of all, Paul prays to God because sanctification is first and foremost a work of God. For notice it says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace, and then the word himself. So may God himself. The emphasis is on the person of God. It's repleted. May God himself sanctify you. While it is certainly uh, there is a human element to the process of sanctification, and whereas there is a human responsibility in the work of sanctification, even as we saw last week, that we are to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. Nonetheless, the ultimate basis <coughs> for our sanctification is the work of God. And so Paul prays that the Thessalonians would be sanctified. Next, Paul prays to the God of peace. That is, the God who is the source of peace. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace. Peace there is not just a descriptive genitive, meaning that God is a peaceful God, or God is a God who shows forth peace, but it's really a genitive of source. The God who bestows peace. The God in whom peace can be found and experienced. And that's what Paul's praying for. That they might know the peace that God gives. And that peace that God gives is twofold. It's peace with God, meaning that we're no longer enmities uh, with God, but we are his children and accepted by him. Romans 5.1 Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, so that God is at peace with us, and we are at peace with him. And secondly, he's the source of peace with others. In 1 Thessalonians 5.13, Paul said, regarding the believer's response to the leadership within the congregation, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. Where is that peace going to come from? It's going to come from God. It's going to come from His work in the hearts and lives of His people. So Paul prays to the God of peace that God would sanctify 
the Thessalonians. So notice in verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. The word to sanctify means to make holy. It is also the word to set apart. That is the primary emphasis of the word to sanctify. It's to set apart for God. For example, in the Old Testament, the vessels of the tabernacle were referred to as being holy, such as the holy lampstand or the holy table or the table of showbread. It was holy because it was set apart, consecrated, dedicated to the work of God. It was uniquely fitted to function in service towards God. So when we think about his sanctification, it is our being set apart uniquely for the purpose and work of God. God has gifted us as his people. And in those gifts, he intends them to be used to promote his service, to accomplish his work, his will in our lives. And so we are set apart, dedicated, consecrated to the work of God. And then secondly, it does have the connotation of being morally righteous. That we are to be different from the world around us. We are to be set apart. And we are to be moving from sin unto righteousness. So Paul prays that God would sanctify every aspect of the Thessalonians' lives. Notice in verse 23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. And now these, this word, entirely. NIV translates it, through and through. King James says, holy, holy. Some churches have the doctrine that is called entire sanctification. And that doctrine in those churches usually means that it is believed that that there can be gained a sinless perfection in this life. That we can get to the place where we no longer sin. That's not what this passage is teaching. That's not what is meant by entire sanctification. What is meant is that it is to be speaking about the totality of our being. Being made righteous in every part. Notice in verse 23, it goes on to say, And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. It is talking about our whole being. Our body, our soul, our spirit. Sometimes it's easier to understand these things in the negative than it is the positive. So on the flip side of that, we hold a doctrine that is referred to as total depravity. And when we speak of total depravity, we aren't saying that people are as sinful as they can be. Or that that everyone exemplifies sinfulness in the same degree. Not everyone is an Adolf Hitler, if you will. There are, there are, there are uh, degrations of sinfulness. But when we talk about total depravity, we're talking about every aspect of our being. Our emotions, our will, and our intellect have all been tainted to, by sin. It's all been corrupted by sin. So that our emotions are sinful emotions. Our desires are sinful desires. 
Our thoughts are sinful thoughts. And our actions are sinful actions. That sinfulness pervades our entire being. That is the flip side of what is being referred to here as to be sanctified entirely. That, that every aspect of our being, our emotion, our will, our intellect, would be set apart for the work of God and that this work of holiness would be produced within us, body, soul, and mind. For this is, in fact, in keeping with God's command. We are told in the Old Testament that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus repeats that on a number of occasions in the New Testament and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind. We are to love God with our entire being. We are to love God with our desires. We are to desire Him more than anything else. We are to love God in our thoughts, the way that we contemplate God, and the way in which we contemplate living for Him. We are to glorify God and love God in our actions, in the things that we do and we say. Paul's prayer is that the sanctifying work of God would be complete. That it wouldn't just be external, but it would be internal. That it would reach into our very hearts, our very souls, our very minds. So that Jesus taught concerning the Ten Commandments. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already in their heart. So Jesus teaches us that the commandments are not just about outward actions. When the scripture said you should not commit adultery, it was much more than just engaging in a physical act. But Jesus said that even in your heart, that you would not lust after this woman. And that your thoughts would not be adulterous as you think about this woman. That you would be pure not only in your bodies, but in your heart and in your mind. That is the entire sanctification of which Paul is praying for. That our bodies, our souls, and our minds would be presented complete, it says in verse 23. Be preserved complete without blame. Without blame. So again, what does that mean? To be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, again, to be without blame does not mean to be sinless. It is not that we would be found to be sinless when he comes, but that we would be approved when he comes, that there will be no fault in us. Again, the negative so much, so often, is easier for us to understand in the positive. The Bible teaches 
that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I think we realize that. Uh, Most of you probably have heard that on numerous occasions. The scripture also teaches in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 that we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That all our goodnesses, all our good deeds, all our favorable actions, everything that we would point to as that which is good in our lives before we know Jesus Christ as our Savior are viewed as filthy rags. They are unacceptable. They are not viewed as approved by God. The scripture says without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without believing in Him, there is no goodness to be presented to Him. That, I think, is easier for us to understand. That before I came to know Christ, God did not look with favor upon anything that I did. All of our goodnesses are as filthy rags. But now that we've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, now He looks upon us and accepts us completely and approves of us and does not hold our sin against us. Where before, whatever I did could not gain His approval, now, whatever I do cannot alienate me totally and completely from God. So that we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in verse 4, it says, Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, His choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit, with full conviction that just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. For your sake. And it goes on to say that we have not been appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul prays and uh, seeks this work in their lives. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verses, verse 10, it says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, which is referred to in verse 23, wait for his Son from heaven, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These non-believers are going to experience God's wrath. We will not, because we are going to be without blame before him because of the grace of God. So Paul prays with confidence that the Thessalonians will be sanctified. Verse 24, the confidence is found in God. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. God, uh, Paul is confident that their sanctification will be completed because God will accomplish it. Notice the end of verse 24. And he also will bring it to pass. Paul is confident that their sanctification will be completed because of the faithfulness of God. Verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you and he who will bring it to pass. Paul writes to the Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it to the day of Christ. 
the God who started this is going to finish it, is what is taught in this particular verse. And so Paul is confident that their sanctification will be completed because this is the intention of God's will in saving us. Verse 24, faithful is he who calls you. The emphasis is on the work of God. Here it goes all the way back to even the work of God in our salvation. Why are we saved? Because he, he, he called us. In chapter 1, he chose us. He, he selected us. He intended to save us. And not only did he call us, but he called us for a purpose or for a reason. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 7. Verse Thessalonians 4, 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So that in calling us, God set us apart right from the very start. We are different from people that are round about us. And that difference lies in the work of God. God called us. He did not call them. He separated us. He made us different. And in that separation, he has purposed that we live for him to bring him honor and glory. That purpose is being worked out in our lives progressively. We are becoming more and more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are becoming more and more dedicated, faithful servants of him. He who began it is going to be the one who completes it. When we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, we will, in fact, be righteous. Right now, we are viewed as righteous because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. We bear His righteousness. It is imputed to us, meaning that it is counted towards us. He took away our sin. We still sin. But yet we're viewed as righteous in the sight of God. We are without blame because of the work of Jesus Christ. But when Jesus Christ returns, then we are going to be completely transformed. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we shall be. We know that when He appears... We shall be like him because we will see him as he is. When Jesus Christ returns, that work of sanctification is completed. We will faithfully serve him forever and ever. That separation is going to be complete. The righteous are going to be with him. The unrighteous are going to be separated and be in hell forever and ever. The sanctification, the separation, the holiness is complete. And when we are with Him, there will be no more sin. We won't lie to one another. We won't steal from one another. We won't envy one another. We are going to live in a a state of perfect righteousness and holiness. He's going to complete it. He's going to bring it to pass. And that is Paul's hope. 
First John teaches us that we are to live in anticipation of that future hope. And First John 3, 3 says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We are in this process of becoming more pure. We are in this process of becoming more holy. We are in this process of becoming more righteous. We are in this process of becoming more dedicated. We are growing in our relationship with God. Paul prays. He prays for them knowing that God is faithful and He's going to bring this to completion. God is faithful in the beginning. God is faithful in the end. And God is faithful in the middle. And that's what we focused on last week with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit teaches us. The Holy Spirit brings conviction to our hearts and minds. And as we saw, we are to cooperate with that Holy Spirit. We are not to quench or or to grieve. We are to be conformed more and more to God's will for our lives. But it teaches us that ultimately and finally, sanctification is a work of God. So, a very practical lesson. If we desire more holiness in our lives, if we desire to be less sinful and more dedicated to the work of God, we need to pray for that. We need to pray for our children. We need to pray for our church. We need to pray for our loved ones. We are to follow the example of the Apostle Paul who is praying for the Thessalonian believers. This is what is going to bring about righteousness and holiness. The work of God. So let us pray for ourselves and for others in this great work of God. So we find Paul's closing exhortations for the Thessalonians. Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to pray for him and his teammates. 1 Thessalonians 5, 25. Pray for us. Pray for us. Uh, Paul is not specific in verse 25 about any particular request. He doesn't say pray for boldness. He doesn't say pray for wisdom. He doesn't say pray that we don't experience persecution. He doesn't say pray because we're lonely. He doesn't say pray because we're often shipwrecked. We're often going through difficulty. He simply says pray for us. And if we just took this out of context, we would say, well, he's just saying, well, we'll pray. But if you put it in context, where Paul had just prayed for the Thessalonians' sanctification, we understand when Paul says, pray for us, he's praying for his sanctification. Paul is saying, I'm not perfect, and I haven't completely arrived. He certainly says that in the book of Philippians. And as he prays for them, he says, pray for us. Pray for us. It is a mutual responsibility. All of us, none of us have arrived. None of us are perfect in this life. All of us have areas where we need to grow. Areas where we need to be more dedicated. Areas where we don't departmentalize the faith. He's praying for an entire sanctification. Heart, soul, spirit, mind. The entire being. Uh, I don't know about you. I do know about you because I know the Bible. And we have a tendency to departmentalize our lives. 
And as we grow in grace, certain things fall away. Certain sins just evaporate. They, they, they don't hold us any longer. So, maybe before you were saved, you swore a lot. Took God's name in vain. And after you're saved, you've been wonderfully delivered. And uh, rarely, if ever, now, do you find yourself taking God's name in vain. Maybe you wrestled with certain sins. Well, as we grow, we can see that certain sinful behaviors drop. Uh, We become more Christ-like in certain ways. The difficulty is allowing that to permeate every aspect of our lives. And there are areas where sometimes we we give ourselves a a buy, a pass. And and we tolerate sinful behaviors or or thoughts or conducts. And in one particular area we say, well, that's not so bad. And we look at all the areas where we have changed and and, and we're happy. And we should be delighted that, that God has brought about these changes. But we never ought to be satisfied with this other area as well. We need to be praying for each other. So even the Apostle Paul could be more dedicated. Could have been a more faithful servant. Could have been living a more righteous life. And so he says, pray for us. That also is an encouragement because it teaches us that we don't have to be sinless in order to be heard by God. Or to pray for one another. Paul is asking a people for whom he is praying that they be completely sanctified, saying, pray for us. Pray for us. Uh, We need to pray for one another. We need the prayers of one another. And we don't have to be perfect in order to offer those prayers. So he says, pray for us. Secondly, uh, it is the plural. It is the us. The us in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is not just concerned about himself. He's concerned about Timothy. He's concerned about Silvanus. And that's really the way we ought to be as a people of God. Not in a judgmental way. Not in a fault-finding way. But we ought to be concerned for one another in our lives before him. That uh, we are concerned when we see uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that they walk with him. The second exhortation is for a sincere fellowship in the Lord. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When you read that, I don't know what that means how that sticks out in your in your mind. In our culture, we don't greet too many people by kissing them. We might greet our wives by kissing them, or we might greet our children by kissing them. But uh, I haven't seen too many people leaving church or coming into church and the greeters are standing there kissing everybody as they as they come in. So that might sound a bit odd. And so we might read it with the wrong emphasis. And, uh, you know, so they greet one another with a holy kiss, you know, and start to feel pretty uneasy. And then some churches like to become a little new wavy and start kissing everybody and, you know, want to be biblical, etc., etc. Well, the idea is not greet everybody with a holy kiss, but it's greet everybody with a holy kiss. 
It was the, it was the common practice of the day, uh, just as it is in some cultures today, to greet people and kiss them on the cheek, you know, both cheeks. And in some cultures, you kiss them on the mouth. But the point was that when you show affection in the church, let it not just be a common <coughs> display that mimics the culture, but let it be unique. Let your kiss be a holy kiss. May it be sincere. May it be real. May the affection be genuine. In Peter, it talks about the unfeigned love of the brethren. First Thessalonians 5.26 Greet your brother with a holy kiss. Romans 16.16 16, Greet one another with a holy kiss. First Corinthians 16.20 Greet one another with a holy kiss. Second Corinthians 12.13 Greet one another with a holy kiss. You get the example here that it's said to all peoples. First Peter says Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Let it be sincere. Let it be real. Let whatever affections you demonstrate be true. So we could translate that and even bring it into our culture and think about the way in which our culture greets other people and says such things as, how are you today? When you ask somebody, how are they today? Do you really expect them to tell you how you are? Do you want to take the time to listen uh, to them when they say how? It, it's, it's, it's a matter of formality. Good to see you. Is it really? Glad you came. Are you? I'm praying for you. Do you? Are these things real? Are they sincere? Letters are becoming old hat. Uh, now everything is by email. I still don't know email etiquette. I don't know what you're supposed to do with email. But uh, I know with a letter, you put dear so-and-so, right? Are they really dear? Are they, are they really precious to you? Uh, it's what is acceptable, suitable in our culture. The idea is, let it be genuine. Let it be real. Let our behaviors reflect an inward truth. It's back to the heart, soul, and mind issue. So that we aren't just accepting on the outside. But we are truly accepting of one another on the inside. We're not just caring in the good deeds that we do, but we're caring because inside we really have a concern for other people. So he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And then the exhortation. Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to be sure that all the believers are instructed in the truth of this letter. This letter is to be read in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, I adjure you by the Lord. The word translated to adjure means to be placed under oath. And so, this is a command that Paul is giving in the most forceful ways. And he says, this letter is to be read. Notice verse 27. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The brethren are mentioned three times in this short passage. And it's always about all the brethren, without exception. In verse 27, the word read 
is in the passive voice. Notice it says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read. It doesn't say to read this letter. It says to have it read. Be sure that this letter is read to everyone. So, why does it say that? A number of reasons. First, it has the implications for public worship. That this is to be utilized in their gathering together. They are to read this letter. And the instructions that they are to give is to be founded upon the letter. So that the letter is focal point. It's not just the teaching of the letter, but the letter itself. So Paul is saying, when you gather together, be sure that you have read this letter to everyone. So that everyone knows where this instruction is coming from. Everyone knows where this teaching is coming from. Uh, That is the basis, among many other passages in the Word of God, that we emphasize the public reading of Scripture. We have Scripture reading as we gather together as a part of our service. And then, repeatedly, I keep taking you back to the Scriptures to show you that what we are saying comes from the Scriptures, comes from the Word of God. So Paul says, have this letter read. Secondly, it is incumbent upon the leadership to see that this takes place. Have a letter read. In that culture, in that day, there would have been many people who could not read. And the impetus and the onus is, well, for those that can read, give them the letter. For those that have the education, hand them the letter and let them read it. Now, the emphasis is that everyone, it is clear, everyone is to hear this letter. It is to be universal. It is for everybody. Everybody is to have the Word of God. Not just the learned, not just the educated, not just those that can read. Everybody. Everybody. Let this be read. I also say this is a word of encouragement. I uh, encourage you to read through the Bible in a year. And uh, I meant to say it this year, and I failed to say it. I even thought about it. I even written it down. And I failed to say it. So I'll say it to you now. In our, there's no reason that you have to read the Bible if you struggle with reading. You can listen to the Bible. And there are loads of ways in which you can listen to the Bible. You can get the Bible on tape. You can get the Bible on CD. The Pastor Dave put uh, websites in, if you have a computer, that uh, you can listen uh, to the Bible read. Uh, that is fine. But hear the Word of God. And so Paul says, have this letter read. It demonstrates a concern for the entire church, the entire congregation. And then Paul's closing remarks for the Thessalonians is actually a bookend. In the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 28 the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The book opens. 1 Thessalonians 1.1 Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. It starts with grace and it ends with grace. 
That is the ultimate lesson of the Christian life. It starts with grace. It ends with grace. All that we are, all that we will be, is by the grace of God. Unmerited favor. Undeserved work of God in our lives. And so Paul commends them to God's grace. Why do we expect God to work in our lives? Not because we are worthy, but because He has chosen to do so. He's called us. He's called us with the purpose of sanctifying us, setting us apart uniquely for Him and His will. We believe that He will be faithful and work that out in our lives, the lives of our children, the lives of our loved ones, and the lives of our church. And so we call upon God and ask, O oh God, make us more and more acceptable in Your sight. Make us more and more use, useful to You. Make us more and more different from the world around us. Separate us unto Yourself. That's Paul's prayer. That's the ultimate goal of the book of Thessalonians. And it really ought to be the ultimate goal of all of our lives. May we commend each other to the grace of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the book of Thessalonians. We thank You for the great truth that we have been set apart by Your Holy Spirit, for Your will, for Your service. And Lord, we pray that You would set us apart entirely. Our entire being. Emotion, will, intellect, heart, soul, mind. Uh, Lord, not just in our outward actions, but our inner spirit, our thoughts, our desires. Lord, may we be different from the world round about us. Transform us by your power and your grace. We are thankful that you began that good work in us. You called us. You separated us. You sought us. We didn't seek you. You named us by name. You sovereignly caused us to, to hear the word and the gospel. Lord, we are thankful that you brought faith into our lives. And Lord, we ask that you continue to develop our faith. Develop that committedness in our hearts and minds. Oh Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to continue to strive with us by your spirit. And give us a sensitivity that we don't grieve or quench the spirit, but cooperate with the spirit of God in our lives. And we long for that day in which this great sanctification will be complete. We long for that day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and we will really be righteous. That we will be a transformed people completely, entirely. Heart, soul, and mind. We will not sin. Oh Lord, help us in the intervening period of time to pray for each other. Uphold one another. Recognizing that there are areas in which we fall short. May we never be satisfied. May we never be complacent. May we never be apathetic. And at the same time, may we never ever doubt our acceptance by you. But Lord, help us to seek a greater devotion to you and Christ-likeness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.